Today's guest is Allie Winston to discuss past deportation policies and the effects they have had both for the individuals and the countries they're sent to. I'm Ali Winston. I'm a independent reporter. I've mostly covered criminal justice and issues of civil liberties, surveillance, mostly recently extremism, although I guess that's about five years, six years into this tack of reporting, so it's not that recent. I've written for places like the New York Times, ProPublica, Rolling Stone. Uh, my colleague and I are putting out a book on the history of the Oakland Police Department in January called The Oakland, called um, The Riders Come Out at Night. And it's more about the question of like police reform and American law enforcement culture. Um, but over the years, I've had a lot of a lot of opportunities to report on how the immigration countries, immigration policies and systems interact with the criminal justice world, which is unfortunately very closely intertwined these days. So, could you touch on the different deportation policies we have seen under recent administrations? Sure. So. This may be a little bit on the back of people's minds, considering the tumult of the past four or five years in the Trump, um, Trump administration. But Barack Obama actually deported more people than any other president before him. He was called the, by his critics, uh, many immigration reform advocates, he was called the deporter-in-chief. The administration, over the course of his eight years, removed almost three million people in a pretty Strong continuation of the Bush, the George W. Bush administration's immigration policies. And in fact, the Obama, it's important to remember that deportation and that um, immigration control and rapid removal of people who cross the border without documentation uh, is a bipartisan project and has been since the 1990s. Um, so this is aside from all the opprobrium that Obama caught and W did before him, uh, it's important to remember that a 1996 law under, passed under President Bill Clinton by Congress really underpins this. The uh, 96 Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act uh, basically curtailed pathways to legal citizenship. Previously, you could, be, you could apply for citizenship and, you know, if you had been in the country for about seven years and could show that you know you hadn't you know offended and it made it it made it more difficult for people to attend to obtain visas, um, it made it easier to remove people and made it easier to remove them um, even more even more quickly once you were able to establish criminal offenses. Also, at the same time, violating immigration law, being in the U.S. without papers became illegal. So this sort of deportation regime was initially used to allegedly used to target quote-unquote criminals under the in first locally in los angeles where the um if, you'll, if your listeners will remember there was a very strong emphasis throughout the 1990s on getting tough on crime and cracking down on you know gang members and organized crime and people who are involved in street shooting, allegedly involved in street shooting and drugs. But realistically, um, what ended up happening is throughout the 1990s, a huge number of people without criminal offenses, without criminal histories, were removed to their countries of origin, mostly in Central America, Mexico, and further south, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua. And that those same tools were actually beefed up and expanded by the first the W administration and the Obama administration into 
basically the present day where ICE, well, first the Internet Immigration and Naturalization Service, which is the predecessor for ICE, um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, really began to start focusing more on law enforcement operations, not just removing people and, and verifying status, but conducting their own criminal investigations for conspiracy, um, going after alleged gang networks, organized crime, and that really is a big overlay that happened onto the immigration system in the, I want to say, probably mid-2000s up through the end of the Obama years. Trump came into office promising that he'd remove everybody, build a wall in Mexico, you know, blah, 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 deport more people than anybody else beforehand. But unsurprisingly, because Trump just wasn't a good bureaucrat, that really didn't come to pass until the COVID-19 pandemic kicked in. And then the Trump administration used the extraordinary powers um, granted to them by Title 42 of the U.S. Code, which enabled them to restrict the number, the ways in which people could apply for asylum and entry into the U.S. and actually allowed them to start removing a tremendous number of people. So this continued actually up through the, the 2020 election and the changeover administrations into Joe Biden's term. And about 2.5 million people there have been two, about 2.5 million removals from the U.S. under Title 42. Um, that doesn't mean that can also mean repeat entries. The data really isn't clear yet, but a tremendous number of people have actually been kept out of the country or removed from the country thanks to Title 42. Now, a court last week, or not, excuse me, not last week, last month, um, struck down Title, Title 42's current enforcement, claiming that it violates the rights of asylum seekers to seek presence in the U.S. There has been, to back up a little bit, there has been a tremendous wave of people seeking to come to the U.S. from throughout Latin America mostly and the Caribbean. Uh, the main sources of migrants right now, asylum seekers, are from Venezuela and Haiti, uh, some from Cuba, obviously from Central America. It's a, it's a steady flow, but in, I want to say, the past year and a half, just hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Venezuelans fleeing a collapsing society, economic crisis, thanks to American sanctions in part, spiraling violence, inflation of the sort that wasn't even seen in Weimar, Germany, um, just a really, really rapid deterioration of their living conditions in the past 10, 15 years, 10 years, really. Um, they've sought to come to the U.S. for a better life, and um, Title 42 basically kept them out. And a judge last month ordered the Biden administration to end this rule and start processing asylum applications. They have until, I believe, mid or late December for this court plan. And it's not clear what's going to happen with that. But really, there's been, this, there's been this bipartisan effort for over two decades. It's not, if you're observing this, on a long term... Um, it's not a one party does this, one party does that. Both parties are really bought into this, um, this mission to stem migration to a certain extent. And it really has a pretty grim human toll. Um, and is obviously of questionable legality. Components of it have been, have been flipped over by the, the courts. And there's, there are almost always battles between immigrants' rights advocates and, um, and you know, the law enforcement arm of the government, the Justice Department, they have not very seldom broken from each other um, in terms of how different components of the law of their, their deportation powers and their removal powers can be used. Um, the Biden administration did roll back some aspects of the Trump years. They did end an expedited removal 
procedure put in place by uh, the Trump administration in 2019. Um, Biden signed this into office on February 2nd. The executive order um, 14010 um, basically ended the ability of ICE to deport people without a hearing in front of an immigration judge. This was also litigated. Um, it was fought over. It had, was, I believe, in the courts on a bunch of different in a bunch of different venues at the time of Biden repealing that executive order. But it does kind of represent the logical way in which things were going um, during the pandemic. Immigration hearings were suspended. People were being booted out of the country. Um, I've attended immigration court in the past. There is a they don't like outside observers. It's not like normal criminal court. You don't have the right to an appointed attorney. In a way, it's it's a bit of a fucking sham, to be honest with you, to watch that mechanism in play. And um, it, it's just it's something that Washington really buys into. That's a long-winded answer to your question, but by and large, there has been, with subtle, with subtle and not-so-subtle variances here and there down the years, there's been a Republican and Democratic Party pro, um, project to harden the American border regime against undocumented migration, dating from, I would say, in earnest, about the mid-1990s. In these deportation pools, while having a number of individuals who are looking for a better life, we also see members of organized crime in the mix. Can you touch on that? Absolutely. So there are, there's always this side to the immigration debate. And I don't, I think that one of the big flaws in the U.S. is that we paint it in terms of, we give people inherent virtue and advocates on one side say, oh, everyone's a criminal. They got to be kicked out of the country. We can't have this. They're ruining America. And on the other side, immigration advocates will say, well, you know, we should have no borders, everyone's welcome here, you know, people are fleeing a better life, everybody has a chance, you know, if they're in whatever situation they're in, well, that's because of their circumstances, but there is the aspect of, the criminal aspect of the immigration enforcement um, regime really does stem, it's a, it's a sort of blowback, in a way, from American law enforcement policies of a previous generation. So in the 1980s and 1990s, in response to the rise of narcotics-driven violence, in particularly in Southern California, but also a little bit further north and in Texas and Arizona as well, law enforcement agencies started cooperating more, local and state law enforcement agencies started cooperating more with immigration naturalization services, the INS, um, to remove people and to remove gang members and to remove people associated with organized crime or street violence or narcotics dealing who are in the country illegally. So previously, you know, you could get locked up for this sort of offense. And, you know, if you're able to skate on your initial charge, you wouldn't get removed. But during the 80s and 90s, INS started sending agents to liaise with county sheriffs and check on jail populations and check for status. Um, depending on what you were locked up for, or what, and they also checked on state prisons as well, depending on what you're in prison for. When you served your sentence in state prison, they'd remove you once you got out. If you were in county jail and you were awaiting trial, and they figured out you were off status, you could be removed as well at whatever stage of your criminal process. And in particular in California, and then in other areas, this really did overlap with the era in which previously loose-knit street gangs, um, you know, neighborhood gangs and the like, were starting to be forged not only by the narcotics trade outside, but also by politics within prisons. And in particular, the rise of the kind of umbrella group 
Umbrella Gang in SoCal, the umbrella network of uh, the Mexican Mafia, La Eme, and the Sereno Gangs that would be under them, also dovetailed with the emergence of Nuestra Familia in Northern California, Aryan Brotherhood for the white boys, Kumi 415, and uh, the Black Gorilla family for African-American inmates. But the difference is that the Sereno, many of the Serenos didn't have status, in particular folks who belonged to street gangs like Mara Salvatrucha, 18th Street as well, different local sets all throughout Southern California. Um, let's see, Shelltown is another example from San Diego. Florencia is Florencia Trece is another one. And in particular, the removals back to Central America of a lot of these folks who had come over to the U.S., as children or as teenagers and had fled a war-torn society and they'd been hardened up and they'd been exposed to a different thing in the States. They'd been exposed to Southern California gangbanging and, you know, the streets of Los Angeles, which are not, and elsewhere, Orange County, Inland Empire, San Diego, and those are not kind places to anybody who knows if you grew up in the street life out there, it's, it's a real thing. Especially during that time, it's violence, street violence is far, far lower now than it was during that era, during the... 80s and 1990s. And when these individuals would be removed back to Latin America, excuse me, to Central America, they basically started up their own clicas down there. So, you know, in by the 19, late 1990s, 2000s, you had a burgeoning um, presence of MS-13 and 18th Street in El Salvador and Honduras, just throughout that entire Central American area. And a lot of the gangs basically propagated themselves down in, down on that pathway through which Colombian cocaine and other narcotics came up the pipeline, came up the Mexican pipeline to the States. And they became enmeshed in that traffic over the years, um, working for various cartels and organizations, DTOs, drug trafficking organizations, both from Colombia and Mexico and elsewhere. And uh, really, you know, up to the present day, like, and it's this state of affairs, Helen, you can speak to this more than I can, but there it really is a situation now where in countries like El Salvador, you know, these you, the politicians have to work with these street gangs now to control the country because they have, they hold sway over such wide swaths and so many people. And it really has served, unfortunately, to further destabilize societies that were already destabilized by American um, funded and fueled wars, civil wars in the 1970s and 80s. So, unfortunately, we've kind of dealt it to you know, we've dealt two blows, one from the back and one from the front to these societies down there. And it's really unfortunate. And then in Mexico, you know, deporting people back over there has helped over time feed the growth, not only of Mexico's indigenous gang culture, but also firming up the ties between street gangs in the U.S. and over there. And it has brought, you know, I don't want to say that it's fueled things one way or the other because I'm not an expert on on street culture in Mexico or Central America, but I can say that you know there is significant feedback between the states and down there. Um, it's formative. I wouldn't say it's determinative, if that makes any sense. Before deportation even occurs, these individuals find themselves heading towards the U.S. for a number of reasons, be it economical issues or fleeing active conflicts. Yeah, I mean, there's... This is not just a phenomenon in the U.S., but it's a global phenomenon. We are entering, or we have entered, depending on who you speak to, 
a period of increased global instability caused by a number of things. One, you can say it began with the end of the Cold War and the loss of the Soviet Union as a supplier for client states throughout the world. Two, it's caused by, so therefore certain societies started to collapse and you saw, I guess you could see the kind of, you see that a little bit more in Africa than you do in other areas like closer to us. I mean, Cuba's been under an embargo for so long. I guess you saw that in the 1990s when the Cuban, um, Cubans started coming over again in big numbers. But climate change is driven, uh, has created a lot of, obviously, fluctuations of the weather pattern, uh, weather patterns. There's a lot more drought, and there are far many more crop failures than there were in decades past. Uh, this dynamic is very concentrated around the equator. Um, so you're receiving a, a lot of more previously fertile and arable land become less viable for agriculture, um, both for commerce and uh, for sustenance. So populations are moving. They're moving um, away from this belt towards areas where they can feed themselves and where they can provide for their loved ones. So in Europe, you're seeing a big migration. Europe and the Middle East, you're seeing a tremendous number of people coming into cities and going towards the European Union. And that has, that, I guess, the Syrian refugee crisis, Syrian-driven refugee crisis is a great example of that, 2014-15. But one has to remember that on the tail end of that were a lot of people coming from Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, which have also seen a far, far greater um, frequency of natural disasters and also their own countries, underdevelopment, mismanagement, failure of their current economic policies, harm inflicted by oligarchies. Similar dynamic in Central America, except it overlays on top of the carnage wrought by not only the social dissolution that happened in the 1980s um, from the Contra Wars, which in some places continued all the way through the 90s, but in Mexico in particular in the 1990s when NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was passed, many, 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 many farmers were driven off their land by dropping food prices and inability to stay competitive and had to migrate, had to abandon their land and migrate to the North America for work. That still continues to this day, although that migration train, that migration circuit is quite well established. Um, it was always there, but it started pushing people from new parts of Mexico that hadn't previously hadn't had such high levels of out-migration like Chiapas and Oaxaca um, into the States from, you know, ejidos way, way, way out in the, in the boonies. And now, you know, the U.S. previously saw a lot of migration from Haiti. That never really stopped, but it kind of comes and goes in waves. There are a lot of people being pushed out of Haiti, both by their ongoing basket case of government and the inability to deal with the humanitarian disaster wrought by the 2010 earthquake and all the subsequent overturn, you know, turnovers in government. You're seeing a lot of people as mentioned beforehand, fleeing Venezuela. You're also, um, because of what happened to, what's the disastrous course of the Maduro government that succeeded um, President Hugo Chavez after his death. And that really, that migration wave has not just impacted the U.S., it's impacted basically everyone within striking distance of Venezuela, Brazil, Colombia, Panama, any country that's on the kind of migration route up north to the U.S., which is where a lot of them are trying, which is where almost all of them are trying to go in the long term. Um, but Colombia, in particular, has absorbed a lot of Venezuelans into their society. Brazil, to a lesser extent. And every now and then, you'll get people who are from the Middle East or from as far away as like Ukraine trying to come into the U.S. from 
from you know either overseas air route or via Canada occasionally, which is rare. The Canadians have a very strict um, border regime, and then sometimes overland by Mexico, but that's rare. It's really the exception rather than the rule. So as a result of the American pullout of Afghanistan, there are a lot of Afghans who have applied for asylum who either have worked with the American government or their positions were such in pre-Taliban, pre-Taliban takeover Afghanistan that they run risk of uh, mortal harm. So that's, those folks have made up a large, large number of the recent asylum applications that have come in, but they're not, I mean, they're dwarfed by the number of Venezuelans. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people coming in every few months, you know, because they thought that they would be able to, they thought they'd be able to really get a better life here, but that just doesn't look like it's, there are maybe, you know, there's been these busloads of people carted into New York and Boston and Philadelphia by the Southern governors and um, are flown in illegally, some might say, from Texas and Florida. But those people are, um, you know, there are maybe like 50, 60,000 of them at least in New York and Philadelphia and Boston combined. Um, and that's just a fraction of the number of folks who have come over. And the majority of them are Venezuelan. Some people from elsewhere in South America, but the majority of those folks are Venezuelan from the reporting that I've seen. What the majority thought when discussing leaving active conflict zones, people point towards countries in the Middle East, but that's not always the case. What violence or conflicts are people attempting to escape from within Latin America? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Colombia, even though they have a peace agreement in place, they're still very active groups. Um, Fragments of the um, anti-government rebel forces, they're sprinkled throughout the Colombian countryside and are actually quite, in some cases, well interwoven with similar elements in Venezuela. There certainly is, like, the Venezuelan state has lost hold of a large portion of its cities in terms of controlling the way the day-to-day trade goes. There are certain, certainly organized crime elements in Venezuela that make life very difficult for people. And then, I mean... I guess we can call what's happening in Mexico a low. I mean, what's ha- what the day-to-day factor of life and the, the day-to-day manner of life in El Salvador, in Guatemala, in Nicaragua, um, in the cities where these gangs basically running their own lethal, their own running their own programs, both in the states and here, and they control big swaths of these cities. I mean, there is there's a high homicide rate in these countries. People, you know, it, there's different ways in which. Um, academics and policy folks talk about violence and conflict, but gang violence is certainly a low level of it's a, a, what's called a, quote, low-intensity conflict. Sometimes it gets hotter. I would characterize what the ways in which Mexico's various criminal elements and street gangs and cartels have gone back and forth at each other um, since um, former President um, Vincente Calderon declared open warfare on the cartels in 2006. I would call that like a medium-grade conflict. Hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives at the very least in Mexico since uh, the government and the military really started going at the cartels, and it's completely changed the manner of day-to-day life, iterations of day-to-day life there. So you know, it's we're not in an era of like, aside from obviously the great exception is the Russian invasion of Ukraine and that ongoing hot conflict. Syrian civil war as well, although that's entered a different phase. It's kind of that's they've been a stalemate there for quite some time. But there aren't too many like conventional wars out there. It 
tend to be conflicts between governmental and non-governmental or non-government, non-government um, entities and that often you know, have criminal elements. And I would say that that really does characterize the overwhelming majority of conflicts which people from Latin and Central America are fleeing and coming to the U.S. and applying for asylum under. And that's actually part of the problem is that because a lot of these conflicts are not recognized, because a lot of the use dynamics are not recognized by judges universally, or there's no, there's no basic agreement on whether or not conditions of low-grade conflict in a society or street gang dominance of a neighborhood or fearing a street gang's threat to your life is grounds for asylum. I mean, the thing is that many, the sad truth is that many of these same conditions do exist in the States, right? I mean, it, they exist for native-born, Latino, white, black, Asian, Native American youth in cities and in communities throughout the country. And there's, you know, this is something that judges do take into question and that basically the federal government has not really backed down on and said that we're not going to give blanket, we're not going to treat people from one society in a blanket fashion if they just have, you know, random social, not random, but if they have this level of social instability. In a case-by-case -case basis, you'll see exceptions to it. But by and large, this has been one of the, the problems is the people, many people coming to the U.S. who are fleeing violence and instability in their countries, they're fleeing circumstances that the American government and the American courts don't always recognize as worthy causes for asylum, for granting asylum, that is, and status. You previously touched on migrants from Venezuela, but I wanted to discuss the treatment they have received within Mexico, as Mexican National Guards have been seen harassing migrant caravans before. Yeah, I don't think that's changed at all, actually. Um, I think that the caravans, you know, the first caravans formed several years back, um, and really migrants started traveling these large groups to avoid harassment and extortion and rape and sometimes murder that would be visited on them en route by whoever they came across who sought to do them harm. And my impression is that or what I've seen reported is that the American government has actually worked quite closely with the Mexican government to limit the number of people who not only are coming into the U.S. or allowed into the U.S., they've also worked quite um, heavily to, you know, they've signed agreements with the Mexican government that agree to repatriate people. Uh, Mexico will accept people and has accepted people booted out of the U.S. under Title 42. It's not clear how that will look considering that the federal courts have basically struck down the government's ability to use Title 42 to restrict people from coming into America, from coming into the United States. But I will say that Title 42, um, you know, the Mexican government basically cut a deal, has cut quite a few deals in terms of bringing back, um, accepting people who are removed from the U.S. and, um, you know, accepting people who aren't being returned to their home countries, who are being returned to Mexico. And this, these agreements have cost, you know, have come in the form of monetary assistance, military assistance, trade concessions, the like, but this is kind of the bargaining chip that successive Mexican governments have, um, have used to get concessions out of the Americans over the, over the years. Yeah, I mean, kidnapping, the kidnapping of migrants, unfortunately, is a very is is an ever-present phenomenon. I mean, there was 
there have been a couple of absolutely horrendous massacres of people who've been held for money by coyotes or by criminal organizations, not by coyotes, excuse me, by criminal organizations that are trafficking them across the border. Again, they're often, you know, one of the things about the, the migrant trade, about running people across the, the border, across La Lenia, is that um, now the coyotes, the roots where beforehand in like the 1980s, you'd have people who ran people over the border and then uh, folks who ran drugs over the border. But now, they re and occasionally they'd mix, but now because of the expansion of the American surveillance of border sectors and the increased, the heavier, uh, more effective, broader reaching sorts of surveillance technology used across the borders and aerial surveillance, drone surveillance, that sort of like, because of that hardening of the border, people who are crossing have been pushed further and further out into remote areas that, um, and there are fewer routes. So now if you're crossing, you're basically crossing either carrying a load or you're crossing on a route that's used and controlled by a DTO. After deportation, what do these individuals face back home? It depends. I mean, some people are, you know, this is something that I'm not really up to speed on in a great way, but I think that a lot of times people are taken advantage of um, when they come back, if they're not able to have, oftentimes people will go into debt or will take out will tremendous loans in order to be able to get across the border and pay a coyote or pay their way through it. And I think, you know, that when they come back, they owe not only money, the money borrowed, but they owe the percentage on it. And now that they don't, they're, they don't have the, um, the prospect of earning in the U.S., of earning um, dollars to pay off that, that VIG and the initial loan. So it's not great. I think that when we really think about each society, we have to look at them in different Perspective. Some people don't go back to their own country. They're they're put back into Mexico or elsewhere, and you know, just put in limbo. I mean, this this is the this is the hardest thing about all this. I mean, these are people's lives that we're talking about, their futures, their their well being, their livelihood. And when you are without a country and without a passport and without status, everything becomes so 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 hard, and you are really at the mercy of the people. You're really at the mercy of the people who are hosting you and the government that's hosting you. So it's, it's an awful situation. I wish I knew more about it, but um, unfortunately, I'm a little bit dark on that area. I don't have a great amount of visibility into it. So, Has there been any joint effort between these countries and the U.S. to mitigate or combat the violence stem from mass deportation of criminal members? I guess the best example of this would be the Central American countries. The response appears to be purely law enforcement. There's been a lot of um, transnational training par training programs, partnerships, intelligence sharing between LAP places like the LAPD, LA Sheriffs, Southern California Law Enforcement, California Department of Justice, Texas Department of Public Safety, and governments down south, facilitated through the FBI and through the State Department. But uh, these are all aimed at crime. These are all aimed at people who are allegedly criminals. And, you know, it, it, the mitigation aspect, the aid aspect, that has been one of the harder things to pin down. It's been ephemeral. The, the states, no administration's really been good on this. 
Uh, it's allegedly what Kamala Harris is supposed to address when she, you know, now that she's in charge of a certain the border portfolio. But you know, if you've seen anything about her career, yeah, I don't know. She just really doesn't get shit done, if you know what I'm saying. So it has been, there have been fits and starts in terms of these efforts, but by and large, I mean, it, it does tend to be from a law enforcement perspective and from that lens of things. The development aid um, that does go to these countries doesn't really, a lot of it doesn't go to resettlement. Unfortunately, the hard truth is that once we push people out, we don't really take care of them. That's the responsibility of the country where they're sent to, uh, sadly. We may be good here. Do you have anything else you want to say or plug? No, I just think that, you know, a big part of what's happened with the border is that a lot of the, and I, I looked at this years ago, maybe about 12 years ago for the, for the first time and did a bunch of reporting on it. The, um, the immigration apparatus in the United States really has been given the tools of the military and particularly the and the intelligence community and particularly you know a lot of the aerial aerial and um, sat and radar and mapping capabilities that you know are uniformed are you know the Pentagon and other uniformed agencies have to protect the border uh, to surveil people to surveil uh, you know the actual landscape of the border and through things like you know uh, lidar motion detectors and smart cameras allegedly although that's an incredible boondoggle through predator b drones unarmed predators that are flown over the american and border with canada and the border with mexico sensors along the actual line and then you know if we're talking about how things look on the interior uh immigration and customs enforcement have a have they're really 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 good at big data harvesting and sorting and analysis you know there are all these different systems that were built and tools that were built for them a couple of which were built, you know, built by blue chip Pentagon contractors. Palantir is a great example of this. They built a tool called Falcon that ICE uses to kind of streamline and centralize all the intelligence it has on people who are potentially in the U.S. out of status. There are several databases, um, formerly separate databases, but now gradually over time they become more integrated into single, um, single points of contact. Some of these databases were legacy databases that started under the Treasury, uh, the Treasury Department, which is where INS was initially, you know, used to be housed before uh, the post 9-11 creation of the Department of Homeland Security uh, that is the, you know, parent department of ICE. And in time, ICE really has a tremendous ability to go searching for people. They'll comb through utility bills, driver's licenses, vehicle registrations, parking tickets, misdemeanors, gang cards that are processed, not even charged, you know, incidents where there's an arrest or a contact by a cop and no charge for someone who's allegedly on gang status. Could be even by a school cop, and then that results in somebody being placed in removal proceedings. I've seen that before. You know, it's really a way in which the change that was wrought on American society started with, it starts externally, it starts obviously with, you know, we're looking for terrorists, we're looking for Al-Qaeda, we're looking for Osama bin Laden, oh, now we're looking for MS-13, we're looking for this, we're starting to look at it, you know, we're starting to try to protect our border, we're up-armoring it, we're looking for MS-13 in our cities, so now we start to put more and more of our population under higher level, levels of surveillance, and now, before you know it, your parking tickets are being combed through for evidence that somebody's in the country illegally, and your 
uh, neighbor has a ring doorbell that local cops can access without a warrant. Like it's just all these things that kind of snowball. These changes, these really drastic changes to societies, don't come fast; they come slow. And that's one way in which I've kind of thought about. I've used that framework to think about how the immigration system and immigration enforcement uh, overlays on American society writ large. And it really is, you know, all these changes, this sort of oppressive course of policy, it gets it gets visited on peripheral populations at first, on populations where your rights are not the same, where you are treated as either an enemy combatant or an illegal alien or an undocumented alien criminal or whatever it may be. And uh, I just think that there is this debate often, the immigration debate and the asylum debate oftentimes gets cooked down to very, it's boiled down to very simplistic terms and I just don't, I think that as opposed to seeing it one side or the other side, or should we have people here or should we not have people here? Aside from that, we also think, need to think about what the creation of this vast enforcement regime and dynamic has done to American society as a whole. And I think it's a very corrosive effect. And that's just, you know, my take on it from looking at it through my own perspective, my own unique perspective, but it really has... It's been a hell of a thing to watch over the past two decades, 15 years, 16 years. Where can people find you if they want to read your stuff or learn more? Sure. Um, so I don't use much social media uh, to face out into the world. I mostly use my Twitter account, which is A Winston, um, A-W-I-N-S-T-O-N. Um, I'll probably set up a Mastodon account at some point. I'm slow on that. I really don't. <laughs> I'd rather just work and Spent my time on that. Uh, my colleague and I, Darwin Von Graham, we're publishing a book in January, uh, early January, from um, Atria Books, which is a Simon & Schuster imprint. You can find that. It's called The Writers Come Out at Night, Corruption, Brutality, and Cover-Up in Oakland. Um, I promise it's a good read, and it touches on some of these aspects in there, um, in bits and pieces. But that is coming out on January 10th. You can find that wherever books are sold. Um, ebook, audiobook is also online, too. And... Someday down the range, down range, I might set up a website too. Who knows? But that's where you can find me. My email is on my Twitter page, and you can, if you want to contact me, you can also direct message me as well, and I can get you on signal. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. Thank you for listening.